0: Hello, and thank you for being a member of the History of World War II podcast, Episode 160, All Their Eggs, One Basket. Last time, we saw elements of the Waffen-SS not only pulled out of the fighting to rest, but they would be promoted to fully mechanized divisions. Surely, Hitler had a soft spot for these men. But more than that, they represented the Nazi state and its ideology. As such, they were too important to fail. Hitler also had plans for the Totenkopf Division, but before any paperwork came their way, they and much of Army Group North was caught up in another of Stalin's massive counterattacks. On January 7, 1942, the Soviet waves came, as the Totenkopf were, unfortunately, spread out more than they would normally be. Some were at Staryaya, about 10 miles south of Lake Ilmen, itself about 200 miles south by southeast of Leningrad. Here, the SS division had infantry, reconnaissance, engineers, and artillery units, but the bulk of the division was around Demyansk, about 40 miles to the southeast of the first group. The SS troops at Staryaya had been building up their defensive works for some time. Hence, when the Soviets came at them, the men of the Totenkopf there held their own, and, in fact, would stay in this area, frustrating the attackers here. And the SS and Wehrmacht forces at Demyansk would also hold their own, at least around the town. To either side of them, though, the Russians were able to advance west. If this kept up, it would be the Germans inside a Russian pocket. A nice turn of the tables. As such, on January 12th, Field Marshal von Lieb, Army Group North Commander, asked Berlin if he could pull back his troops to avoid that very encirclement. But Hitler said no, there would be no pullback. The men were to stay and fight. If anything, they were to use their proximity to the enemy to crush them. But von Lieb did not stop sending messages back saying the situation at Demyansk was only getting worse. To kill the enemy in front of him was one thing, and the Germans were holding their own, in regards to those to the east of them, but soon they would be attacked on all sides. Hardly a recipe for success. Still, Hitler would not budge, and soon von Lieb offered up his resignation to show the seriousness of the situation. Hitler, thinking the man a coward, accepted it and Colonel General von Kukler was put into his place. Von Lieb left headquarters on January 17th. Though Kukler brought a fresh perspective to the battle, this did not conjure up more troops to push back the Soviets, coming further west on either side of Demyansk. Three days later, on January 20th, the two Soviet wings met up west of Demyansk. The majority of the Totenkopf with regular units, about 95,000 soldiers with 10,000 auxiliary units, were trapped. Yet the men at Staraya, to the north, were hardly any better off, as enemy troops there were to their southwest, north, and northwest. As Hitler had gotten the men into this situation, it was up to him to get them out. And here again, he believed in himself. Telling the trapped men to hold on, a relief force was being gathered, and until it could punch a hole through, supplies would be flown in. Fortunately for the Germans around Damiask, there were two airfields in their area, and the main German line was only about 40 miles away. Not an impossible task. The supplies and reinforcements started coming in, and the wounded were flown out. As the Germans were still the masters of the air, Hitler's plan was plausible. As the trapped German forces waited, Theodor Eck, the Totenkopf's commander, was ordered to break his men up in the south into two groups. The smaller of the two would help defend the eastern side of the German pocket and keep the Soviets at bay. Meanwhile, he would lead the larger, other group and head to the western side of the pocket to make sure that the enemy there did not begin to push in. He could see for himself when he got there that the Soviets were strengthening their ring, but that mattered little if they could not begin to reduce German-held territory. The days went by while Eck and his men of the Totenkov held back attack after attack. Hitler's cavalry, so to speak, would be the Tenth Corps after it was augmented with other forces nearby. But... Again, this took time. The latest report said it would be ready to move by March 21st. Until then, the Soviets had to be held back and daily supply flights made to the trapped Germans. Finally, March 21st came and the reinforced 10th Corps began to move out. At first, their desire to save their comrades and their sheer numbers created forward movement. But then they hit more and more layers of Stalin's rings around Demyansk. The rescue began to slow down. Not until April 14th had 10th Corps reached Ramusho, about halfway from where they started, to the western edge of the German pocket. As they were that much closer, the trapped Germans were told to begin to fight their way to the west, to link up. As Eck and his larger group of SS men were on the western edge, and having earned the respect of the officer corps for their ability to hold back the Soviets, they were given the job of leading the push west. But as much trouble as the Soviet defenders, now turned invaders, were giving the Germans, more trouble and delays came from the arrival of Spring and what it did to the roads. Just like the first heavy rains of fall, the mud was released from its ice and rose up for long stretches, covering the roads needed for the heavier vehicles. Before the second week of April was passed, the Totenkopf were gaining only a mile a day, more from the mud than the Russians. Finally, on April 21st, Eck and his men reached the River Lovat. Across its half-mile width, The leading elements of the 10th Corps could be seen. The next day, April 22nd, supplies from 10th Corps were being ferried over. There was nothing the Soviets could do to stop this. The siege, for all intents and purposes, was over. Once again, Hitler's instincts proved correct, which would lead him, in the future, to give a similar order when it came to Stalingrad. Feeling dizzy with arrogance and relief, Hitler practically tossed out medals to the defenders. The Totenkopf earned 11 Knight's Crosses. Still, the Soviets had not gone anywhere. They were still pushing along the line of Army Group North. Nor would they let the Demyansk pocket expand. The Germans held on to what they had, but only just and had to fight to keep the status quo day after day. Now that Stalin's big counterattack and siege at Demyansk was over, Eck was hoping, rather loudly, that the Totenkopf would finally be pulled out for rest and that promised expansion. But with the front in the area barely holding, it made little sense to Berlin to voluntarily weaken their position anywhere along the front. Yet the men of the Totenkopf needed the rest. By early May, their numbers, around 6,700 men, were down to a third of their proper strength, and of those, their emotional and physical strength was equally reduced. The only good news was when, on May 8th, the Danish Legion, Freikorps Danmark, were flown in. Right away, they were put with the SS Totenkopf's reconnaissance battalion and ordered forward to reduce the nearest Soviet position. This was a success, but they all knew it would provoke a response. Sure enough, in early June, the Soviets came at the same area. The Danes and the reconnaissance battalion held their own, but the Danish leader, Christian von Schaldeberg, was killed. Then his replacement was killed in the next battle, along with 346 Danes. Getting their third commander, the Danes dug in, and the stalemate that claimed so much of the eastern front, due to the heavy rains, dominated here as well. Yet, being a part of the SS, the Danes were tenacious in defense and earned the respect of their officers. But this came at a price. By late July, the Danish legion, which had started with seven hundred and two men, were now down to 219 men and officers. Meanwhile, Eck, the Totenkopf leader, found that his wounds were not healing properly from being wet all of the time. In fact, his men had stopped sleeping in their dugouts for fear of drowning while they slept. So he was sent back to Germany in June. Max Simon was told to take over. Eck did not want to leave his men, but realized he could perhaps be more helpful by being closer to the powers that be. Before June was out, after meeting with Hitler and Himmler, Eck was given a promise that, if conditions warranted, the Totenkopf would be pulled back and expanded to a fully equipped Panzer Grenadier division, with a tank battalion. Indeed, new recruits were gathered the next month. But instead of being sent to the east, they were sent to a training area to be a part of this new division. But then Eck found himself waiting. Waiting out July, waiting out August, but his men were still not being brought home. This was because of the ever more Soviet attacks on the Demyansk Bulge. Eck wanted to scream at Hitler to give up the territory. It was not worth losing the rest of his division, but of course he did not. Hitler may have been thinking the same thing, but his credibility was now vested in demyansk As for the men at the front, Startenfuhrer Max Simon found himself unable to deal with the ever-lowering of his men's morale, knowing that they could be recalled at any day, but were not And having the Soviets come at them on a regular basis made their lives hell. The best Simon Inek could do was when a man was sent home for medical reasons. He was then quietly transferred to the new training ground with the new recruits instead of going back to the front. Of course, when the men found out about this, there was a slight increase in self-inflicted wounds. Finally snapping Eck went to Himmler and demanded to be sent back to the front. Himmler not only said no, but put Eck on indefinite convalescent leave. As for his men, the Soviet counterattacks subsided in early September, and as this calm went on until mid-October, only then did Hitler pull out the Totenkopf. But by now, their numbers were down to that of a mere infantry battalion. Adding insult to injury, in March of 1943, Hitler would quietly order the Bulge to be given up. Thus, his men of the Totenkopf had died for nothing. Yet, as for the Viking Panzer Grenadier Division, that was not allowed to go home, because Hitler had plans for them in his summer offensive of 1942. Der Führer's plan for that summer was to continue his drive south, towards the Caucasus Mountains, and the Viking would lead the charge. As for the rest of his armies in the east, they would stand firm and allow the enemy to come to them, hopefully to be wiped out. As for the SS National Legion's, Himmler's idea, he was to find that they would not work out as he had hoped, and making mistakes in Hitler's view was always a risk. First, the Flemish Legion, that is, Legion Flandern, was sent to Army Group North. Having just over 1,000 men, it was made into an overstrength motorized infantry battalion, with three rifle companies and a heavy weapons company, with an anti-tank company. It had been ready to go as early as November of 1941, but with few vehicles to spare, certainly during the mad dash in the East, In the second half of 1941, it had to wait its turn. For the opening months of Operation Barbarossa, the Flemish Legion spent its time in subjugating anti-partisans. But when the massive Soviet counterattack came in January of 1942, the Flemish, along with any other units to hand, was sent east. They would try to help hold back the Soviets south of Lake Lagoda. The Flemish, fighting with Sturmbannführer Michael Lippert, found themselves next to the Spanish division, a gift from General Franco. As the Legion Flandern got into it, they found their profound lack of training cost them lives and the respect of the Germans. To be sure, they were determined enough, but warfare is a science and certain skills must be learned and practiced. By July, those Flemish troops still alive had picked up a lot in that time and earned the respect of their German officers. The end result of a limited offensive of the section of Army Group North was the encirclement and destruction of Stalin's 2nd Shock Army. Of course, by the time this happened, the Flemish were down to just 13 officers, 26 non-commissioned officers, and 288 men. Other of their countrymen were brought in to beef up their numbers, but the worst of the fighting, for now, was over. Before 1942 was over, they would be put with the SS Polizei, and then, in April of 1943, pulled back to the West. As for the Danish Legion, or Freikorps Danmark, it had helped with the Demjansk Salient, and as such, was allowed to go home in July of 42. But right away, their fellow countrymen let them know that they were not welcomed, being considered collaborationists. In the fall of 42, they were sent back east and engaged in rooting out anti-partisans. This went on until March of 43, when they too were disbanded and sent back west. Then there was the Norwegian Legion, or Legion-Norwegian, Its men not only did not want to be there, but held on to their independent spirit, which was not what the German officers needed in Army Group North as they were trying to hold back the Soviets. But Norway's leader, Vidkun Quisling, sent them to win political points with Hitler. Yet in the end, there were too few of them to really contribute anything, and following orders was not their strong suit. Operating in the Leningrad area from February of 42 to early 1943, they were by then disbanded and sent home. Lastly, there was the Netherlands Legion, or Legion Niederlande. It contained 3,000 men, and after training was sent to the front in January of 1942. It had helped with the destruction of the Soviet Second Army, but being helpful at the front did not make them popular back home. The legion's commander, General Seifert, stayed back in the Netherlands to focus on recruitment. Yes, this legion offered up the most men of the overall system, but Berlin was looking for much larger numbers, and Himmler was trying to oblige. But Seifert was assassinated by the Dutch resistance in February of '42. Eventually, a leader would be picked, who seemed to genuinely care about the men and got along better with his countrymen. But even he could not drum up more men. But at least he wasn't killed. In mid-1942, the Netherlands Legion was sent to the Leningrad area to stave off Stalin's counterattacks there. Now all the legions were working in Army Group North, most now being a part of the 2nd SS Infantry Brigade. In January of forty-three, Stalin sent out another attack. This was to relieve Leningrad. The Dutch Legion did relatively well in their static defense, but certain units excelled in anti-tank warfare. One particular was a 19-year-old, Gerardus Mooman, who was a natural with the 7.5-centimeter Pak 40 anti-tank gun. And as Stalin was leading with his tanks, This young man had a field day. By the time the Soviets backed down, Moomen had taken out 23 enemy tanks. Himmler pulled him back and sent him on tour to gather up more volunteers, but the locals were not impressed with anyone trying to help the occupiers. By April of 43, all the legions except the Dutch had been pulled out, so Himmler recalled them as well. Overall, these men had fought bravely, but there were never enough of them to make a difference in the war in the East. No, Himmler would try to duplicate the success he had with the Viking division. Though mostly made up of German Reich Nationals and Volk Deutsch, it had shown that with training and a common purpose, something could be achieved. The Legion concept was discarded while Himmler looked around for enough volunteers to create a loosely German division. As the various legions had been participating in defensive operations before being pulled out, Hitler's plan called for Army Group South to go on the offensive, and in the fore would be the Viking Division. Yet before it got underway, Viking Commander Felix Steiner took what he had learned thus far, and reorganized his division. Taking the Westland Regiment, he altered it into two five-company battalions. The fifth would have heavy weapons and pioneer platoons, that is, men who were trained in repairing roads and bridges. For Hitler wanted them to drive far to the southeast, to the oil fields of Maikop, then Grozny, and then Baku on the Caspian Sea. The Third Reich badly needed a new source of fuel, and Berlin wanted to deprive Stalin of the same two birds, one stone, if the Viking could make it that far. Even better, before the Viking got underway, it received a battalion of Finnish infantrymen to man an assault gun battery. This was for extra punching power, but also to replace the stout threes. Lost in February of 42 near Krakow. But what really excited Steiner was the arrival of a panzer battalion commanded by Sturmbahnfuhrer Johannes Mullenkamp. Now the Viking would not have to wait on help from non affiliated panzer units. The other three panzer battalions raised, just for the Waffen SS, were to go to the Liebstandarte, Das Reich, and the Totenkopf. It paid to be one of Hitler's favorites. moulin had some 50 tanks with him, divided into three companies. The first two would have the Panzer Mark III's, but they were still inferior to the T-34, but the last would have the Mark IV, with anti-armor capability. As the Germans had experienced the tenacity of a Soviet winter, Hitler did not need this drive, called Case Blue, slowed down in any way, Thus, a diversionary attack on the Viking's left flank would be directed at Stalingrad. The reinforced SS Viking division would be the tip of the spear of one million Germans and 300,000 Axis troops. As the Germans' war in the East was defensive everywhere else, Case Blue was top priority and needed to succeed. When this offensive was launched on June 28, 1942, it easily cut through the Soviet lines before it, perhaps a little too well. As Viking pushed on, Hitler was only too ready to throw off his own plan and expand the operations, forgetting that it was taking almost a million and a half men to make it this far. As July went by, Hitler's attention kept going back, perhaps vaingloriously, to Stalingrad. What a coup it would be to take the city named after the Soviet leader. As time went by, he would divert more men, more tanks, and more planes towards Stalingrad that was originally only meant to be a flanking cover. By mid-July, Viking division was below the river Mayus, close to Tongarog, It was driving for Rostov on the Don, the city that the Liebstandarte had briefly held in November of 1941. Commander Steiner was nothing short of brilliant in bringing the right mix of men and weapons, including air attacks, to pierce one defensive ring after another, moving ever closer to the city. Thus, when the city was reached, the Soviet defenders inside were caught off guard. Rostov on the Don fell to the Germans on July 24th. Glorious as this was for Hitler, again he had been right and reveled in the insult to Stalin, the Viking moved on further south. Their latest orders told them to cross the Kuban River and take the Maikop oil fields, located along the foothills of the Western Caucasus Mountains. By this time, the panzers and trucks of the Viking were moving so fast, they were actually within the midst of the retreating Russian troops. Reaching the Kuban River, the men of the Viking were across it by August 7th. The oil fields fell on the 10th. And yet, as Steiner's pioneers went into the plant's facilities, they found that the machines were so wrecked by the Soviets, no operations were possible. So, it was now one stone, and only one bird. The Viking was ordered on further south of Mein Kampf, now coming upon the foothills of the Caucasus. But here, the openings were narrow, with high mountains on either side. The perfect place for an ambush. Not wanting to risk their tanks, the Viking was told to hold, for on the way were German mountain infantry. The Viking came to a halt, on August 14th. The men of the Vikings spent their days of August and September in anti-partisan operations. Then the mountain infantry arrived and engaged the local defenders, and then they all drove on to the Black Sea port of Tuapce. A bittersweet conclusion, to be sure. Yes, the Soviets were humbled and driven back, but there would be no oil for all of Case Blue. But the war wasn't over. Viking was then ordered to go to the Chechen region of the East Caucasus. There, they were to help Kleist's 1st Panzer Army, who was having trouble near Mostok, located in between the Black and Caspian Seas. After that, they were all to head to Grozny, and then hit Baku, some 300 miles to the southeast, on the Caspian Sea. But neither Steiner nor Kleist's chief of staff thought that this was doable, what with their long supply lines and current resources, and, of course, the lateness of the season. But as Christ said, this was coming from OKH, the equivalent of the voice of God. Like the men of Alexander the Great, the troops were worried about going so far afield, so far from their homes. Would this war ever end? What would it take to declare victory.